Welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. Welcome to the May Sound on Sound podcast, which accompanies the June issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob-Johns. Hello there. There's a lot to look forward to in the June issue, but first, let's see what Hugh's been working on over the past few weeks. Oh, I've had an interesting pile of toys to play with the last couple of weeks. I've been looking at the Quantec Yardstick Reverberator, which is a remarkable box. It looks like there can't be anything in it. It's so small. It's a rack mounting unit, but it's only about an inch deep. It's amazing. But it sounds absolutely fantastic. Very, very realistic room sounds, which is uh, very good. I've also been looking at a new preamplifier called the Europa One, which comes from Dave Hill. Uh, you probably know his name in association with Cranesong. This is a new venture for him, and it's a very interesting preamp with a lot of facilities to colour the sound. You can change the amount of harmonic distortion, you can change the uh, slew rate of the amplifier, and that gives it a very kind of vintage quality. So it can either be very modern and very fast, or quite vintage and round sounding. It's a nice, uh, a nice preamp. I've also been looking at some new microphones. The M1030 from Microtech Cafel is one, uh, and a very large vintage-style large diaphragm microphone from a company called Bees Knees in Australia. And this particular microphone is called a Sally, uh, and that's a, a very nice, sweet-sounding microphone, and it looks very dramatic too. But what about you, Paul? What have you been playing with? Well, I've been playing with reverbs as well. Um, for a start, I got hold of uh, the Lexicon 224 for the UAD2 platform, and that is actually the original lexicon algorithm. But they've had to do some modelling to replicate the less than pristine sound of the input and output stages of that old thing because it used a very curious 12-bit gain staging converter and some audio transformers. So they've actually really nailed the sound of that old thing. But I guess you've probably used the original on more than one occasion. I have, yes. It's a nice machine. But as you say, it has quite a distinct character of its own, really. Uh, It's impressive that they've gone to all that trouble to uh, emulate it quite so accurately. It is, but if you don't like the emulation and the extra noise that that adds, you can bypass some of it and clean it up slightly for a more modern sound. But in the context of a mix, I don't think it makes an awful lot of difference. As I say, it won't affect sales. <laughs> also on a lexicon theme, I've been looking at the FX bundle that they're doing, which is based on the special effects section of the PCM96. This includes a resonant piano chord thing called the string box, and that's a new addition which is essentially a set of resonators based on the notes of a piano. And you can either use all of them, or just the white notes, or just the black notes, or you can select notes to resonate and others not to resonate. It's really quite curious. It, it turns anything into hippie music, so Martin Walker must never be allowed to get his hands on one. <laughs> That's harsh. There's also the resonant chord program, which is a similar thing. I think it's half a dozen resonators, which can be delayed to form arpeggiator effects so that you can have each of these resonators tuned to a different note and a different delay time. So anything that's harmonically rich and ideally with a bit of a a transient front end will cause the things to ring, and it sounds like an arpeggiating harp in the background. So, again, Martin, no, don't touch it. (laughs) Anyhow, I'm just about to leave for a holiday in Turkey, so if some of the later parts of this podcast include some strange background sounds, that's because I finished it off while over there. In the June issue of Sound on Sound, we start a new miniseries on producing voiceovers at home, while Inside Tracks talks to Gus Olberg about the production of The Strokes. Classic Tracks beams us back to the days of Jerry Lee Lewis, while back in the modern day, we look at how the Apple iOS devices are changing the way we make music. That's all things to do with iPods and iPhones. Also, sticking with record production, Rody MacDonald talks to us about the recording of the minimalist band XX, or should that be double X? Or should it be triple X minus one? Who knows? Who knows? Who certainly doesn't? If it came after Sgt Pepper, we don't know about it. 
We have another Studio SOS, of course, helping a reader to get the best results out of a computer-based system, and Mike Senior dissects some more mixes for your delectation and edification. They're big words, aren't they? We also have our usual door workshops and, of course, another selection of your demos. We have a particularly packed review section this month where we look at over 20 products and sample libraries and books. Top of the hardware list just has to be the SSL Nucleus, which combines a sophisticated door controller with an audio interface. But we also check out the Great River Harrison 32 EQ Lunchbox Format Equalizer, and we test mics by Pearl and Prodipe. On the software side of things, we take a look at the NI Mouth Vocal Synthesis plugin and Wave's radically new One Knob plugins. Other reviews include the Samsung Studio GT monitors, which incorporate a USB recording interface, and the excellent Torpedo Amp and Speaker Emulator. Well, as you can probably hear, I've come out to the tranquil soundscape of a Worcestershire back garden, and that's to give you some oral contrast for Paul's news pieces, which he's recorded in a very boxy-sounding room in his hotel complex while he's on holiday in Turkey. Paul. Hot news. Every month from today, we'll be giving away two free electronic three-month subscriptions to Sound on Sound magazine. There are two ways to enter. You can either follow us on Twitter and tweet about us, hashtag SOSPubs, or like us on Facebook and comment on one of our wall posts. One winner will be chosen from each social networking site each month. Entries must be received two days before the next issue goes live on the Sound on Sound website. So if the mag goes on sale on a Thursday, the entries for that issue must be received by the Tuesday, and winners will be contacted a day later so that their resubs begin on the first day of the latest issue. We'll be announcing the magazine publication dates a week before the issues go live, so you'll get plenty of time to enter. And don't worry, if you're already a subscriber, you'll still be eligible, and your eSub will be added on to extend your existing account. Likewise, existing Facebook friends and Twitter followers will still be allowed to enter. You just need to enter like or comment on one of our wall posts, or tweet about us using our hashtag. Getting started with home recording can be pretty intimidating. And although we do our best to make our articles as accessible as possible, sometimes the kind of information that's contained in Sound on Sound can go over your head. The jargon can at times seem quite impenetrable, and self-taught engineers often find that gaps in their knowledge prevent them from progressing further. So for those struggling to grasp the basics, we've launched the second title in our series of SOS Smart Guides, which is called Music Technology, Basics and Beyond. Written by our esteemed editor-in-chief Paul White, Basics and Beyond has been made specifically with the aim of providing a solid foundation from which to expand your studio knowledge, and it covers everything you need to know about the fundamentals of music production, from cable and connector types through to the underlying principles of EQ, compression and mixers, in over 170 fact-filled pages. Basics and Beyond does exactly what it says on the cover, providing an ideal starting point for aspiring engineers and leaving them fully equipped with the knowledge to move on to more advanced production techniques. In addition, by buying Basics and Beyond, you'll be able to download a selection of top-quality instructional videos from Barclay Music Online, Available now, Music Technology Basics and Beyond costs just £5.99 or $9.99 and can be bought online from the SOS website or in most good newsagents. Anamod, the makers of the highly regarded ATS-1 tape simulator, have released a new API Lunchbox series module called the Relios TL Compressor. Designed to offer a similar sound to the compressor modules found in vintage Helios consoles, the Relios TL is an unusual kind of opto-compressor which uses a tungsten lamp not as a control element, but as a gain control element. Rather than illuminating a light-sensitive resistor, the lamp is placed directly in the audio path so that the filament heats up as the signal gets louder, increasing its resistance and so reducing the output level. 
This approach is claimed to yield lower distortion than traditional compressor designs. And the control arrangement is remarkably simple with only one input and an output gain control. The input gain control governs the amount of compression and there's a toggle switch to bypass the compressor. Available now, the Relios TL compressor is £900 including VAT. Pro Audio supplier HHB has recently taken on the exclusive distribution of Megami cables. Made in Nagano in Japan, Megami pride themselves on uncompromising attention to detail to produce cables of exceptional quality and durability and capable of ultra-low loss signal transfer and very low noise. The strength and flexibility of Mokami cables is perhaps best illustrated by the company's Cat5 product, which lies very flat on the ground and can withstand being run over by a truck without loss of bandwidth. Similarly, Mogami's commitment to developing the optimum cable for each application is evidenced by Polarflex, a microphone cable that retains its flexibility down to minus 40 degrees centigrade, making it an essential part of every polar filmmaker's equipment. There is a Megami cable to meet the demands of every musician, recording engineer, live sound contractor, camera operator, post facility, theatre and broadcaster, from the tiniest Lavalier microphone cable to heavy-duty digital snakes. Every Megami cable is designed and manufactured to perform at the highest levels. Impressively, HHB has announced that 10% of the value of all its Megami cable sales, up until the IBC show in September, will be donated to the Red Cross Japan Tsunami Appeal. Beijing-based microphone makers Mike W have announced a new model designed to work with Apple's iOS devices and it's called the i436. This new mic apparently conforms to both IEC and ANSI measurement mic standards with a flat frequency response and an omnidirectional pickup pattern. It is intended for use with the numerous metering and audio analysis apps now available for the iPod, iPhone and iPad touchscreen devices. Although Mike W say that it will also come in handy for musicians wanting to record their practice sessions and performances. Shipping now, the Mike W i436 is selling for £109. Unity Audio have released a follow-up to the Rock monitor speaker, which is called the Boulder. This new three-way design employs two 7-inch low-frequency drivers with a generous 30mm excursion range, and the cones are made of pulp construction with a 0.2mm aluminium foil coating to stiffen them. These two base units cross over at 454Hz to a dual concentric mid-range and tweeter arrangement which comprises a 5-inch ring radiator and a folded ribbon tweeter in the middle. This dual concentric configuration means that there are no time of arrival differences between the two drivers which in theory creates a wider monitoring sweet spot and less off-axis coloration. The boulder contains four Class AB power amplifiers designed by the audio guru Tim DeParavicini of Esoteric Audio Research and it has user controls for overall level, a plus and minus 2 dB high frequency shelf, and a mid-band cut and boost control. The cabinet is built from 18mm Baltic birch plywood, with a 30mm slab of Corian as the front baffle. This synthetic material is more usually employed as kitchen worktops, and is used here for its high density and rigidity, as well as being machinable to carry the highly radiused edges which reduce edge diffraction. The boulder monitors are described as having a fast, accurate and detailed sound with an extended bass response and a more detailed mid-range and higher SPL capability than the Rock, which makes them more appropriate for larger rooms. Available this summer, the boulder is expected to sell for around £5,000 a pair. Hi there, JG Harding here, video media editor for Sound on Sound. There's a couple of interesting articles here in the June 2011 edition. 
Uh, first up, we have the oddly named Ali Bubo, which is a aluminium stability device for the iPhone. It's specifically if you're shooting video with iPhone. Uh, there's a version for the iPhone 4 and also one for the 3GS, and you can buy it in a package with, with one of the Rotolite 48 LED lights. The Bubo itself is, is milled from a solid lump of aluminium, so it's pretty heavy in the hands. It helps with handshake, transferring shake to the device, kind of eliminates a lot of that. It's also got a screw thread where you can attach a wide angle or a, a macro lens and uh, comes with an extra microphone so you can improve the recording quality of the iPhone 4. What with the iPhone being able to record 720p HD video now, uh, a lot more people are using it for blogging purposes, low budget videos, uh, for promotion of music and that kind of thing. So it's certainly an interesting prospect to have a stability device especially for it. We also have a feature in the form of the art of the edit. Drawing from my experience of creating a video for a band called The Heartbreaks for their song Jealous Don't You Know, I've covered a lot of non-technical aspects of editing, the things that are usually missed out in, in articles to do with non-linear editing software. The focus of the piece is the artistic side of editing, how to use pacing, shot selection, movement within the frame, deciding to cut on or off of the beat. Uh, in different sections to reflect both the structure and the energy of the song and uh, the, the image and vision of the artist as a whole. I also talk a little bit about how to weave a, a narrative or some kind of atmospheric content into a video. So if you're not just going to use a, a recording of a live performance, uh, classic tricks and ways of, of blending these two halves together without them standing out like a sore thumb. There's a couple of little tips in there as well for organising your footage. Uh, little bits and bobs that sometimes get missed by people just starting out, but that really, really do help as the edit progresses. There's quite a few YouTube links in that, so it's, it's a fun article to read through if you follow uh, along by linking to the YouTube examples of promotional videos that influenced me. And then after you've read through, have a look at the video I've made and, and see what you think. And so skipping directly to Q&A time. This reader says, is it best to record a kick drum using a single microphone or would two different ones being used at the same time work better? And if so, do I expect to get face problems? And of course, what do I do about them if I do get face problems? Well, there's a lot of questions all in one there. Hey, what do you make of that? Uh, I don't think it would be better. It would certainly be different to using two microphones and there's no reason not to if you, if you think that's gonna give you the sound you want. Personally, it, I find it generally complicates things beyond the real usefulness, but it depends what you're trying to do, to be frank. Some microphones actually include two physical microphones inside the same body now. I, I use an Audio-Technica microphone, which has that facility, for example. It combines a large diaphragm dynamic microphone with a small diaphragm capacitor mic in the same body. And, and you get different sound characters from those two mics, and blending them together gives you quite a useful range of different sounds. And I guess as they're in the same physical space, or very close to the same physical space, you don't have to worry about phasing issues. No, exactly, because they're time-aligned mechanically inside the, the microphone itself. If you are going to use two separate microphones, then timing is going to be an issue, because they're going to be spaced apart by some degree. Um, obviously you can spend a lot of time and trouble trying to get them next to each other but actually you may equally find that you get a better sound or, or a more appropriate sound by spacing them apart and, and some of that timing difference might actually contribute to the sound you get. That's true, I know that a lot of producers like to put a dynamic mic just inside the shell which gets quite a, an upfront clicky sound but to get a more meaty thump to add underneath then they put something like a, a, a FET 47 or the uh, affordable equivalent uh, a metre or so in front of the kick drum then of course with a distance that great you are going to have phase differences and it's up to you to use your ears to delay the close mic or to negatively delay the distant mic until you get the most punchy sound out of it. 
Yeah, that's right. Because we're talking about a, a relatively low frequency source here, then the the waveform sort of builds and falls quite slowly. And so small distances shouldn't make too much of a difference in terms of phase alignment. But if you're starting to talk about big differences, you know, like a meter or so, then you will have quite quite distinct phase errors between the two mics. And that possibly will tend to give you a, a weaker sound than you really want. So by realigning them time-wise, they'll both be contributing the signal at the same time and you'll both be generating, let's say, a positive wavefront at the same time and you'll get a much deeper, bigger, heavier third that way. That's true. I also know that some engineers like to put one mic in front of the kick drum and another one behind to capture the beta sound. And of course, if you're going to put one behind, then it's probably worth flipping the phase switch on that microphone because when the front head is going forwards towards the microphone, the back one is going away from the microphone. So if you don't flip in the phase switch, you're likely to get some cancellation. Yeah, that, that's right. I've never had much success with the, the microphone behind the beater idea. You always just pick up squeaks of beaters and, and squeaks of shoes. But it, it is a technique that some people use. You're right. And you do get a very clicky sound that way. But yes, flipping the phase or the polarity of the microphone is probably a good idea in that situation. The same as you would on a snare drum if you top and bottom mic a snare drum. OK, well, I think that one just about lays that one to rest. So now on to the next question, which says, why is it that when I choose a compressor plug-in preset, they sometimes don't seem to be doing anything? Oh, we've come to this one before, haven't we, Hugh? We have indeed. It is very common. It's one of our pet hates of presets, isn't it, really? Presets with plugins and, and with other things are designed to give a particular characteristic sound, but you can't just call it up and expect it to work straight off. You have to adjust it to your own particular situation. And in the case of a compressor, that particularly means adjusting the threshold because the guys who design the preset have no idea at what level you're recording your instrument at, your source of voice or instrument, whatever it might be. So you need to adjust the threshold to make the thing work properly in the first place. So you can probably pick the preset which will have acceptable attack and release times and maybe ratio settings, but then you would have to adjust the threshold and keep an eye on that gain reduction meter just to make sure that you're getting a little bit of gain reduction, not too much, and as in your case, certainly not none at all, which would suggest that the threshold is set above what your actual audio is speaking at. That's right. Um, and the idea of a preset, as you say, the, the character of the sound comes from the attack and release times and the ratio and, and the knee of that ratio. So all you really need to adjust is the threshold control, or if it doesn't have a threshold control, the input level control. They effectively do the same thing until you get the appropriate level of gain reduction going. And depending on what you're trying to do, that could be anything from you know 3 or 4 dBs up to 10 or 12 dBs, depending on how squashed you want the sound to be. Yeah, so I guess a good starting point is between 4 and 6 dBs of gain reduction. You can't go too far wrong then. But it's also important to note that this failing, if you like, of presets applies to all dynamic plugins. Uh, it's gates, expanders and limiters. Yeah, absolutely. All of them have threshold controls and none of them, as Hugh says, have any idea how loud your audio is or indeed what its dynamic range is. So even if the preset is tailored in every other respect, you still have to adjust the threshold. And the final Q&A question, the reader says, as I understand it, valves, which are kind of little glass bottles with fire inside, apparently, <laughs> run at very high voltages. So what's the story behind valve gear that runs from low-voltage mains adapters? How does that work? Well, valves don't have to run from very high voltages, but normally they do. Most conventional circuits do require very high anode voltages, which are typically anything from sort of 150 volts upwards to maybe four or 500. If they're working from a low-voltage a wall wart type power supply, it doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't actually running with a high voltage inside because there are things called DC to DC converters that can take a low voltage source and convert it to a high voltage supply. So it, it may be that the circuitry has one of those inside. 
but more often it's called cold plate or starve plate technology. And I think Paul knows a bit more about this. Well, it's certainly true you can run valves at a much lower voltage, but the characteristics change. And I've found that with most mic preamplifiers using this technology, they tend to sound quite spongy, whereas uh, a high voltage valve is actually quite clean and crisp. The possible exception is the AFEX system, which uses a very clever feedback system to make the tube believe it's running at a high voltage when it isn't. Uh, but it's rather too clever for me, so I'm not going to try to explain how it works. But it's certainly true that the very cheap ones, the little preamps you can buy for 30 or 40 pounds that have a, a marketing valve stuck in the top somewhere, um, they do sound a little bit spongy to my ears. Mm. I've never been particularly impressed with the sound quality of them, I have to say, but then I'm, I'm a diehard traditionalist. It's all seriously high voltages in a Hammond. Yeah, I'm the same, I think. When it comes to valves, I, my philosophy is if it can't kill you, it can't sound good, really, but there are a few exceptions. It's <laughs> a good policy to live by. That. I like that one. <laughs> sound advice. Well, Tech Talk this month is really an expanded Q&A because it's based on one of your questions, but one that doesn't warrant a short answer. And it goes something along the lines of, is it important to time correct absolutely everything before mixing in a door? Because surely this wouldn't have been practical back in the days of tape, and the record still sounded good, so why are we moving everything around in fractions of a millisecond increments to try and get it all lined up so perfectly? I think part of this is actually because we can. A lot of things like that happen. There was a question on the forum the other day about why do people make recordings these days with you know 72 tracks or 180 tracks, and the reason is because we can. I think the same applies to this. It's very easy now with modern doors to slide things around in time. And so achieving perfect time alignment is actually a relatively trivial thing to do. And some people think it, it makes a big difference to the sound. There's no denying it does make a difference to the sound. If you time align everything, then you do get a very different sound to not time aligning everything, uh, particularly in terms of the transient attacks on things. Whether you really want to or not, well, I think that comes down to a personal decision and the type of music you're working with. Obviously, it tended not to be done or it wasn't done at all in the music recorded in the 70s and 80s and, and probably even the 90s, really. But it is increasingly common now. So what, what we're talking about here really is, is not moving around the timing for the sake of the musical performance, but trying to align different components that may have been recorded via different mics or DIs to try and get them all in phase alignment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, with uh, with the drum kit, it's a physically large source. And, and if you consider just the snare drum for a moment, the sound from a snare drum is going to reach a close mic on the snare sometime sooner than it's going to reach the overhead, say. And I think most people probably go to a little bit of trouble to try and make sure that the overheads are equally spaced above the snare drum so that by the time the sound reaches the two overheads, it will arrive at them at the same time. But obviously that time is still going to be later than the close sound on the snare drum mic. And that gives you a particular characteristic of sound. Now, some people take that a little bit further and say, well, OK, let's pull those overhead microphones a little bit earlier in time so that it appears that the sound arrives at both the close snare mic and the overhead mics at exactly the same time. And that gives you a different character of sound. It makes it much snappier, slightly more full in body, and it's a sound that some people like. But actually, I think a lot of this comes down to what happens when people try to layer different sounds. A lot of people these days will layer different kick drums, for example, and also layer different snare drum sounds one on top of the other. And in that situation, I think time alignment becomes much more critical and much more obvious. Yeah, this is certainly true if you're doing drum replacement, because a lot of drum replacement techniques involve, as you say, layering the new sound with the existing one. And if you open up the waveforms on the screen, the last thing you want to see is the original bass drum going positive at the start of the waveform and, and the replacement um, kick drum sound going negative because then a lot of the low end is going to cancel out. 
of course you can't get them perfectly in phase all the time because the chances are they'll be at different frequencies but at least you can get them starting at the same time and going in the same direction yeah that's right and that will give you a very large a very big initial sound that will then become slightly more chaotic as the the two instruments drift apart in terms of their frequency and, and their characteristics but it, it's all about giving you that initial weight to the sound i think that that people seem to like it seems to me, Hugh, that a lot of people get rather confused between the terms phase and, and phase invert, or polarity invert, as it should more properly be called, and phase itself. So phase and time, are they interchangeable? I mean, how do you define them? It is a confusing subject for a lot of people. It becomes much easier if you start drawing things on a piece of paper, to be honest, but we'll try and do it in words and see how far we get. Phase and time are related if we're talking about a single frequency instrument. So if we're talking about, let's say, a, a kick drum that has a resonance at 80 hertz, then effectively you'll get a let's say a sine wave let's say it's a very pure resonance drum sound you'll get a sine wave and the sine wave builds slowly and then falls slowly and keeps repeating in that cycle and the period between the peaks is repetitive according to the frequency of, of the signal if you shift something in time let's say we have a second microphone slightly further away than the first one picking up the same drum sound then it's picking up that sound slightly later in time because of the physical distance and the fact that sound takes time to travel a certain distance and if you look at those two signals on an oscilloscope or as a waveform trace on your door, you'll see exactly the same pattern, exactly the same sine wave, but one appears to start later than another. Now, because they're sine waves, people can relate those two things to each other in terms of phase angle, because we say it starts at zero degrees and the complete cycle up to the top, down to the bottom and back to the middle again is 360 degrees. So you can relate one of those instruments to the other one, one of those microphone pickups to the other one by a phase angle. And that's what people refer to when they're talking about phase. But in actual fact, we've created that difference by a time difference. Now, in a more complicated situation where the signals aren't purely sinusoidal, they don't really have a phase relationship. So it can get very misleading in that case to talk about phasing things together when actually what you're talking about is timing them together. Does that help? Yeah, this is why, of course, you get that phasey sound when you add two complex signals together that are delayed because it will happen that some of the harmonic components in there will arrive in phase just purely by luck and chance and they'll add, whereas others will be exactly out of phase and they will subtract and others will be somewhere in between. So you get this um, comb filtering effect, which if you look at that on a, a spectral graph, it, it looks just like the teeth of a comb. So you've got peaks and troughs going right across the audio spectrum. That's right, and that is the very characteristic phasey sound that we all know and love. So just going back to our, our two microphones spaced slightly apart on this 80 hertz kick drum, it may be, just for the sake of argument, that... Let's say when the first microphone, the close microphone, is seeing the peak of that waveform, the second microphone is seeing it only just start to build. So we could say that they're maybe 90 degrees apart at that frequency, um, but it might be a couple of milliseconds, let's say, in time. But if we change that bass drum for a much smaller drum, which has a much higher resonant frequency, and we look at the output of those two microphones, which are still in the same relative positions, what we'll then see is that although it's the same time difference between the two, the phase difference between the two will be entirely different because the frequency is different. And we may be lucky and find that the two happen to align roughly in phase, in which case we'll get a bigger output, or we may be unlucky and find that they're more or less out of phase, opposite polarities to each other, in which case we'll get a cancelling output. And, and that's part of the problem with having microphones that are spaced apart from each other. You get these different cancellations and different additions depending on the relative phase of the two signals, which is dependent on the relative time spacing between the two microphones. So the only way you can get rid of that altogether is to do the time manipulation to make sure they both start at exactly the same time. Yes. 
if you use an electronic delay, a digital delay or, or whatever to realign everything, then you should overcome those problems and everything will then be effectively back in phase alignment with each other. And there are some preamplifiers around that already have that facility built in. The Audient Miko is one example that comes to mind because you can plug in a, a guitar directly and you can put a microphone on it or on the guitar cab and capture the sound acoustically. And then by using this very phase control, as they call it, you can do a bit of processing to try and get the two to sound more like they are in phase with each other. Yes, I was going to ask you about that because I've seen various phase manipulation boxes. I think radial make one as well. Mm. But because they are not using delay, they are actually manipulating phase, then they can't put all the frequencies back in phase. No, that's right. So what, what's the benefit of these boxes? I know some people like uh, the aesthetic result. Yes. Well, it, it's not doing time alignment, as you say. It, it is doing pure phase manipulation. And by doing that, effectively, what you're doing is getting to choose which frequencies sum constructively and which cancel each other out. So you get to choose the coloration and you can twiddle the knob until it sounds nice in the way you want. But it is more of a coloration tool rather than a, an accurate time alignment tool. And I suppose before we leave that subject, we should look at the phase invert button on mixing desks. Is it correct to call it a phase invert button or should it be called a polarity invert button or are both terms correct? No, I think it should be called a polarity invert button because that's what it's actually doing. It's physically swapping the polarity of the signal. It's inverting the polarity of the signal. And I tend to kick people who call it a phase button. Which includes most mixer manufacturers, of course. Yeah, I don't understand why they do that, really, but they do. So it's entered the vernacular. Sad but true. It can be very painful, the vernacular, apparently. I'm very pedantic in my reviews. I always refer to it as a polarity invert button. Yes, I'm starting to get like that. Here we are, a load of sad anoraks, then. <laughs> Because the interesting about phase is that apart from spending half of your life trying to correct it, you can sometimes exploit it to make an interesting noise. For example, if you get a guitar amplifier and stand it on a chair over a solid surface like a floor, well, it would have to be solid, otherwise you'd fall through it, and then you stick a microphone in the middle of the room, you're going to get direct sound going to the mic, plus sound bouncing off the floor, which is going to turn up slightly later, which will give you some phase cancellation at some frequencies. And you can use that as a kind of EQ by changing the mic distance or the height of the amplifier off the floor. So it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it actually helps you shape the sound. Yeah, absolutely. But it's one of those things that you need to be aware of, of why it's working, because if you don't understand why it's working, you won't know how to change it to change the character of that sound. As you say, you can change the height of the amplifier or you can change the position of the microphone, and both of them will alter the relative dimensions of the direct sound and the reflected sound. And the other thing to think about, it works in exactly the same way, or uses the same principles, is the, the boundary microphone, or the, the PZM, pressure zone microphone. The whole idea of that is that you put it on the boundary itself, because that way it only gets a direct sound. There can never be any reflected sound. So you don't get those kind of phasey colorations that would otherwise exist with normal microphone placements. That's very true, which is why we sometimes suggest using a boundary mic stuck to the ceiling above the drum kit in a small and less than perfect room. Because the problem with recording drums in a small room is that the ceiling reflections play havoc with the overhead mics. But if the overhead mics are boundary mics stuck to the ceiling, then of course they're not hearing any reflected sound. Yeah, that's right. Sounds coming off the ceiling. In most houses, the ceiling's not that high. And the distance between the ceiling and the microphone is going to give you a delay on, on the reflected sound. And the distances involved tend to make that significant in the higher frequencies, which of course is where all the cymbal noise is. So you get this extra coloration because of that distance. Putting a PZM microphone or a banjo layer microphone on the ceiling gets rid of that problem completely and you actually get a more natural, slightly more spacious kind of drum sound. Of course, to finish off, we should be talking about the ultimate creative tools that use phasing 
has an effect and that is of course the uh, the phaser and flanger pedals that we all know and love and these work by exploiting this business of keeping one sound fixed in time and delaying the other one relative to it and in the case of these boxes they modulate the delay time so that all the different peaks and troughs in the frequency response sweep up and down the audio spectrum which gives you that characteristic whooshing sound I mean I guess the Leslie cabinet works a little like that too doesn't it I think there must be some phasing element going on in there, but the Leslie cabinet is such a complicated thing because you've got Doppler shift, you've got amplitude modulation, and you've got some phasing things going on reflected as well. Reflected sound as well. Lots of reflected sound. It, it's, a, it's a fairly complicated beast to analyse. But uh, all these things certainly make sound more interesting, don't they? They do, yes. Uh, and it's tools. You need to understand how they work to, to use them effectively. So that's where I'm going wrong with that hammer. I just can't get it into those slots in the screws. Well, once again, the clock has beaten us, so that's all we've got time for this month. So we'll just back up the files, kill the phantom power and switch off the lights on our way out. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Goodbye. See you next month. <laughs>